1: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bizzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sando Burke, the visual artist behind American Quran, published by Live Right in 2015. Could the Quran, understood according to Muslims as the verbatim word of God in Arabic, acquire a nationality? Specifically, could it be American and written in English? Contemporary visual artist Sando Burke's American Quran raises these questions and many more. The groundbreaking and subversive project draws on multiple English translations, which Burke synthesizes to produce his own handwritten American graffiti style translation. On top of that, every single page of the oversized coffee table book contains meticulous illustrations of everyday American life, ranging from celebration to tragedy, as a commentary on both the Quran as well as American culture. Moreover, the provocative visuals offer the reader a way to connect a book from 7th century Arabia to 21st century American cities, landscapes, challenges, and humanity. Given the Herculean task that book accomplishes, it perhaps comes as no surprise that it took him nearly a decade to complete. Beyond the illustrations and translation, American Quran also contains essays from Reza Aslan, Zarina Greywall, and Iftikhar Dadi, which help to contextualize the project. As for Burke himself, he offers no commentary aside from a brief acknowledgment section. This lack of explanation thus challenges the reader to draw conclusions based on the primary source itself. Additionally, because many of the illustrations have no ostensibly straightforward connection to the text, readers also have the opportunity to search for meaning in the pictures, which typical translations of the Qur'an cannot present. At the end of the day, American Qur'an is sure to spark conversations and make waves among a wide variety of people, including artists and academics within Islamic studies and beyond, as well as other curious minds wishing to know more about the Qur'an. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Sando Burke. Good morning, Sando. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Wonderful. So we usually start out New Books and Islamic Studies interviews, with a little bit of background information about our our authors uh, in this case artist and author and so could you tell us a little bit about your your professional and artistic training and how you your formal kind of education
0: um sure Uh, i grew up in the suburbs of los angeles and um i ended up deciding to go to art school for college. I went to the Otis Parsons art Institute in downtown Los Angeles. And, uh, another important thing is that, uh, I started surfing when I was 11 years old and I still surf all the time. And that kind of has had a lot to do with the decisions I've made in my life. But, uh, I dropped out of college after the first two years and traveled around Latin America on surfing and working in surfboard factories I eventually went to Europe and did an exchange year in Paris and England at Parsons School of Design, and then finally made it back to Los Angeles uh, where I finished with a four-year degree in painting from the Otis Art Institute.
1: Cool, cool. And the the surfing motif certainly shows up throughout the American crayon, and we can talk about that soon. Um, But one more thing as well. Did did you have any particularly influential mentors or teachers throughout your artistic training that you could say something about? Um, or even experiences or a class you took, just something that made a big impression on you?
0: Oh, well, sure. What made the biggest impression on me being a California kid was when I went to school in California, we used to have art history classes and we'd go and sit in the dark room and the teacher would show slides and we'd look at the paintings and talk about them. When I went to Europe, my history classes actually met inside the galleries in the Louvre. And so instead of looking at slides, I was suddenly looking at these massive, enormous European paintings. Um, And that had a huge, huge impact on me. It really made me want to become a painter and do big grandiose projects.
1: Cool. So, Today, for many people, is the first day of Ramadan, and as you know, we didn't schedule that on purpose. We went through a bunch of days and it landed here, but I thought that was um, serendipitous in the sense that lots of Muslims will be reading or be attempting to read the entirety of the Qur'an throughout the month. And so since your your project of the American Qur'an is the way that you represented the Qur'an from beginning to end— could you could you say a little bit about what, what, what was your first encounter with, with the Crayon?
0: Well, the, of all the questions you asked me, the, explaining how it, this project began is sort of the most roundabout. But it kind of has to do with like three different threads that came together. But um, I'm trying to think how to explain. But I guess the simplest way to explain is that I'm, as an artist, I sort of tend to do these projects that start with a little, one little idea and they get bigger and bigger and end up usually becoming these multiple year projects. And then when I'm finished, I sort of start a new one. Um, and so, uh, this whole sort of idea for this Quran project began because my previous project, I ended up doing a series of prints about the war in Iraq, um, when the war in Iraq was going on under the second President Bush uh, after the attacks of 9-11 and we invaded Iraq and Afghanistan and um, the whole debacle of that. And I was quite upset about the war in Iraq and unhappy with the way our country was reacting to things. So uh, I was invited to do a print project in Hawaii and I ended up doing a two-year-long print project of 15 enormous prints that told the story of the war in Iraq from the beginning to the po- potential end of it. At the time, it wasn't finished. But uh, so during those two years, I was really very carefully following the news and the everyday discussions about Iraq and and this whole sort of American media cultural discourse going on in the radio and the newspapers about 9 11 and all this discussion about islam and the idea of was islam sort of fundamentally at odds with western civilization was islam of violent religion just all this discussion that was just going on and on and at some point i just sort of took a break and i said wait a second Since I've been a surfer my whole life, I've done a lot of traveling to go surfing, and I started counting all the times I had been to Islamic parts of the world to go surfing. And I think I counted 10 or 11, like, month-long trips to different parts of the world. And I started thinking that this whole discourse that was going on in American media about Islam was nothing like the experiences I had had in Islamic countries. And so finally, one day, I just said to myself, I said, you know, I'm sick of listening to people tell me what Islam is. Maybe I should just figure it out for myself. And I went down the street and bought a copy of the Quran and just started reading it.
1: So that's how it all sort of began. Yeah. Well, cool. Of course, the roundabout stories are often the most interesting. So thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Now, I think this is an unusual book for these interviews in the sense that it absolutely relies on the visuals. So even though it's kind of impossible could you, in some words, explain what what the American Quran is for our listeners that can't see it right now? Just basic outline, format, style.
0: Sure, uh, it's a enormous coffee table book, and it contains the entire text of the Quran in English, which I transcribed every single word by hand into a traditional Quranic manuscript format with a. The text inside boxes and with the palmettes that signify the ends of each verses and with the palmettes and the margins that count the verses by tens. And then uh, the page has a big gold decorative border around the edges, uh, which was taken directly from hundreds of years of historical manuscripts. And then on every single page, there's an image that depicts uh, a scene of life in the contemporary United States. And the images are always connected to the text in a sort of a metaphorical way.
1: And this, all the images are available online as well, is that correct? Yeah, you
0: can see them all on
1: my website, yes. So for listeners that want to connect the visuals, uh, that's one way to do it. So if we go back to your initial encounter with the crayons, as as you read through it, what what were the takeaways that were going through your minds? What kinds of impressions were you noticing?
0: Well, I, I mean, the, the first most simple reaction that one American person might have in opening the Quran for the first time is that you realize it's just remarkably familiar. Um, I'm not a Really, a religious person in general, but I know the Bible from my childhood stories and a lot from art history. When we look at paintings that depict scenes from the Bible, and I know all the main stories, but you know, the Quran is the same stories it's Adam and Eve, Noah, uh, Abraham and Isaac, Jesus and Mary, it's all the same stories. And so, your first impression is that uh, they're so remarkably similar. You know, what's the big problem? <laughs>
1: So, as I opened the book for the first time, this gigantic tome, uh, one thing that struck me was that you have a brief acknowledgement section at the end. And yes. you have a, a preface and a foreword and, and some essays at the back. But there's no substantial text aside from the the project itself that you authored. Was that something that you did on purpose? Did you want to let the text speak and the pictures speak for themselves? or? Is there something that might not be so obvious to the reader?
0: Well, well, I think the Quran speaks for itself pretty well. <laughs> uh, I didn't know what I could add, <laughs> um, but you know, I think I see myself as a contemporary visual artist. That's what that's my occupation. That's what I do. That's the way I think. Uh, I don't see myself as a writer or anything, and like you said, I didn't write anything in the, in, in this project. It's all taken from previous English translations.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I, I wasn't assuming there was necessarily anything more to that story, but I was just noting that it it struck me. And in fact, I think that makes the project more powerful because even if the reader is looking for your explanation of things, I'll have to see it through the visual representations um, that are of course abundant throughout the project. Um, so who do you see as the primary audiences for this book?
0: Oh, I, I, I imagine that the, the book, the audience would be people like me, uh, interested, intelligent Americans that are unfamiliar with Islam and want to learn, uh, something about it. Um, I've often said when I talk about this project that I think it's, I think you could easily say that in the last 20 years that uh, the Quran is probably the most important book in the, in the world, for better or for worse, due to political events and, and things. And I think for average, intelligent uh, human beings, Americans who vote and pay attention to things, uh, for us people to have zero knowledge of what's inside the most important book in the world, I think is shameful. So I hope that my project would lead people to at least start to investigate the Quran and Islam a little bit and then hopefully carry on if they're interested into more scholarly studies.
1: So some related questions on that note. This project took you about 10 years to complete, that's right?
0: Yeah, it took me nine years, yeah.
1: So I guess the first question, when you began, did you know what kind of time frame you were looking at from beginning to end?
0: No, I think if I had known, I wouldn't have undertaken it. <laughs> I almost didn't undertake it, Undertake this project anyway. It seemed like a crazy idea to make a, you know, the idea of making a whole illuminated manuscript like monks used to do in, in the Abbey a thousand years ago, um, to do it. in the 21st century one person all alone in a room just seemed like a crazy idea, even to me, um, I think when I started the project, I imagined it was going to take me about four years and it ended ended up taking nine years.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Was, was there a point where something happened where you're like, Oh, this is going to take longer than I thought.
0: Yeah. Well, all the questions about the project sort of, there are all kinds of different answers because it took so long that it went through all these different phases. But, um, the, you know, luckily as an artist, I've, I've worked with the same three galleries that represent me for the past 20 years. Um, I have Catherine Clark gallery in San Francisco and Copland del Rio in Los Angeles and PPOW gallery in New York. And I went, there's sort of the the people I work with and friends and mentors sort of. And I went to Catherine Clark in San Francisco and told her I was thinking about doing this project. And she said, Oh, this is fantastic. You got to do it. Go ahead. And, she was really supportive of it. And so, uh, but to answer your question more, I guess, uh, the way that it worked in practicality is I would, uh, do different, I would do work on pages and uh, until I would finish about 30 or 40 pages and then take those pages and have an art show of them in one of my commercial galleries. So, uh, about once a year I was having art shows of about 40 pages at a time. And, after about three or four of those art shows, uh, I thought, "Wow, it's really going good," and the reaction was was good. And I thought, "Wow, it's, I'm almost done." And I think it, there was this one day when I just sat down and started like counting out how many more pages I had to go, and I realized I was only like a third of the way through after four years, uh-huh. and that was a really depressing <laughs> depressing day.
1: <laughs> well, uh, going so going back to your target audience and maybe countering the depression I'm not sure so unlike a lot of authors who publish books there's not necessarily like they're not doing like exhibitions on like you know chapter one it's just not that exciting for I think a lot of people but there's a difference so you've had a chance to to test whether or not your target audience is who you think it is and so what, what what have been some of the reactions that you've gotten from people when you say that you're hoping people like you would encounter it what yeah how have people reacted at your these these uh, exhibits for example
0: uh in general fantastic uh the response has been really good um uh especially among uh, sort of young muslim americans um, they've come up to me and said uh stuff like you know i grew up my whole life being like a skateboarder and a muslim kid and here in california and i've always felt out of place and and suddenly like this project is putting my religion and my lifestyle all together into one thing and making it you know seem relevant so the response has been really good the only the, the only not good response has been either people that haven't seen it and so when they first hear that some californian Artists did an illustrated Quran, their, their eyebrows sort of get raised. Sure. But almost as soon as I see it, it's been really, really positive. And the only negative response was during the first couple exhibitions uh, of the project, the galleries were getting uh, a few handful of uh, anonymous emails from people saying that Americans shouldn't waste their time with the Quran and we shouldn't be teaching about Islam and we should take
1: the show down and, and not promote Islam. Uh-huh. And so actually, so Professor Graywall in the beginning of the text, she tells a little bit, she tells a story and includes the character of her mom. And she even mentions how she doesn't think her mom would want to look at this book uh, because she thinks it would be like too weird and just too asynchronous with her sensibilities. And, you know, maybe she's caricaturizing her mom. I'm not sure, but what about this kind of person that they just they think about the project and they're thinking, oh, this is too weird. What what would you tell this person? Or maybe you've talked to these people directly.
0: Oh, I haven't really talked to the people. Like, um, you know, it's fine. If it's too weird for them, then just move on to the next thing. <laughs> That's fine. There's going to be different reactions. But the response has been really good. I mean, um, I think anyone that sees the project can realize the amount of work and serious dedication and scholarship that that I put into it and it's all meant with the utmost respect and with the desire to learn myself and to create something that helps other people learn and i think it's pretty evident
1: just by seeing it sure and so you know con- controversy is sometimes out of out of our hands but in terms of intentional or unintentionally produced Artistic controversy. What what do you think are are the limits? And I guess I'll say one more thing. Like especially, you know, the the Quran can be sensitive for for Muslims historically, and the idea of having images and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, just just in general, when you're thinking about art, what are the limits of potentially offending people or stirring controversy?
0: Well, you know, I. I tried to sort of put that out of my head when I began, um, you know, I'm an American and I'm a visual artist and that's the way I do projects. And, um, so I just sort of went about my own thing and then the response has
1: been good. Um, I don't really, can you rephrase the question? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't. I, I just. I didn't even mean in this project in particular. But thinking about how something like this could stir sensitivities or controversies. So, as someone who, you know, spends his life doing art, I was just curious what you think are are the limits of artistic expression when they may when they may offend, or like, at, at what point would an artist want to reconsider a project if he or she thinks that you know people are going to get offended or upset.
0: Uh, I don't know. You know, I I tend not to think on that sort of grand scale, yeah. especially when I'm beginning a project. I sort of put my head down and 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 think on a small scale. If if you start, first of all, I who am I to make any of those decisions for other artists in the world or something? Uh, I'd make my own decisions and you know do the best I can. So, sure. and I think over worrying about stuff like that would make you not do anything.
1: Sure, sure. So moving to talking about the illustrations in particular, uh, some of the illustrations have like an obvious connection. Uh, um, So like, for example, the chapter of the moon, there's an image from outer space. But I, I think readers might be puzzled a bit or have to think more carefully to figure out the different kinds of illustrations. So what was the process like for you in terms of matching illustrations with the text on each page,
0: right? Well, the the way I went about it, in in general, the way I went about the project was I, like I said earlier, I was so overwhelmed by this all this public discourse about Islam, and so when I started reading the Quran and when I decided to to start this illuminated book project, what I did was sort of um, like put myself in a fake naive sort of position where I just said, okay, I'm going to forget everything that everyone's ever told me about Islam. I'm going to read the Quran. I'm going to take the Quran at face value for what it says that it is, that it's a message coming down from God to all humanity. And if I'm a person living in California and the Quran is speaking to me, what are these verses and and what is the message going to mean to me in my everyday life as an American in the 21st century? And so that was sort of how I you know, in my thinking process, how I approached it. And then how I physically approached it was I took the formats from traditional Quranic manuscripts from a thousand years with the border decorations and everything. And then I would transcribe the text in English in ink on the page. And that would take me a couple of, couple of days to do a page. And during those days I would be reading Obviously, reading the text of the Quran, but reading the footnotes and um, going to Wiki and looking up things, and t- maybe emailing some mentors that I eventually got in touch with if I had questions. But over these two days, letting the sort of the message come into me and and like reveal something to me. Hopefully, an image would come to mind that that went along with the text on that page. And like you said, sometimes they're sort of obvious and. More often they're more obscure, but I think that's better because they they want the, a new viewer to ponder them longer and 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 think harder.
1: Yeah, sure. That that was absolutely my initial impression as well. And given the granic emphasis on like inviting the reader to contemplate things, it seemed to fit that motif so well and in, invite the reader into the text to to think about it. So one of the things about the pictures that, uh, I think will strike anyone looking at it is that the text is covering up presumably what, what, what else could be in the picture. And so was that a conscious decision for you from the beginning to make the pictures covered up by the text and leave things to the reader's imagination?
0: Actually, it was something that sort of evolved. Uh, The the very early pages I did, I would try to squeeze the the images around the text boxes and fit them into this tiny area that was available on the page. And gradually over the years working on it, I started to realize that that the image could go behind the text boxes and then your brain would imagine the scene to be much bigger than it is. And so by using a very small space on the page, I could create the sense that there's a really big, expansive scene, like
1: a, a view of a farm or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it works really effectively. okay, so transitioning from the pictures to the text what what was the process like for you um, to decide on which combination of translations you would use?
0: Well, uh, when I worked on this project, I ended up looking at probably eight or twelve different English translations. Um, but because I had done previous book projects, uh, I previously did a project about Dante's Divine Comedy that became three books. Um, but I knew from the practical world that I, I couldn't use an English translation that was in copyright. Um, I had to use a copyright-free translation in order to, to make my book. And so uh, I used various English texts that are available, copyright-free, and supplemented them with some of the more well-known and better translations that most people probably read like Muhammad Assad and Thomas Cleary and people like that.
1: Were were there any particularly challenging verses where you saw like conflicting translations where you had to make a decision as to which version you were going to include?
0: Oh, sure. Often. If you could just compare English translations, it's, you know, almost always, sentence by sentence, they, they vary in, you know, subtle ways or sometimes in bigger ways. You know, Thomas Cleary's translation, which I really like because it's clear and concise and contemporary English, uh, sure. is is really easy to read the very first time. But then Muhammad Assad's is much more verbose and many more words and much more footnotes
1: and things. So you can easily just compare those two right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Were there any particular, so like, for example, um, verse four or chapter four, verse 34 has become somewhat infamous known as sometimes the so-called wife beating verse revolves around this Arabic verb, darabah, which could mean to hit, or it could mean other things that don't have a violent uh, component to it. Were there, and I, and I noticed you had a particular way that you dealt with that verse. Were there any individual verses that really struck you? Um, in, in that regard where you consciously decided to choose one translation over another?
0: Uh, sure. I mean, that's a, the one you just pointed out. It's a great example. I also worked, uh, as the project went on, I got, I, people got in touch with me and I got in touch with people, uh, like Zarina grew at, at, at Yale. And, uh, she was really helpful in dealing with, uh, the so-called, you know, difficult verses—the ones that um, anti-Muslim people single out. Um, I also worked with uh, Shawkat Turawa at Cornell, and with Reuven Firestone at USC, and so, and and other people. And I was always able to email them when I had a question about about verses or something, and we would have back and forth discussions.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Back to, so in terms of handwriting the whole thing, I'm, I'm imagining like most people don't have the experience in their life where they're going to pick up a book and just like transcribe the whole thing word for word. And so I guess, A, what was that like for you in general? And then B, how did that affect your understanding of the Quran since presumably you hadn't done that before you set off on this project?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, the, the act of transcribing is very slow and ponderous. And so you really think about every word and every sentence as you go along and you have to do it like in a quiet place. You can't really listen to music or the radio or anything because you'd make a mistake. Um, so yeah, I found it very contemplative and meditative and, and a a really fantastic experience to spend that much time with the text. Um, Yeah, I mean, I imagine it's the same experience that monks used to have in their isolated chambers when they were transcribing texts in days gone by.
1: Sure, sure. And so you had mentioned that what interested you in this project initially was your curiosity about the Quran and wanting to understand world events. And so, throughout the process, was there what kind of new perspective did you have on the Quran having written out a translation word for word? Either at the end, or if there was some kind of aha moment you had in the middle. Uh, sure. But you know, another
0: another thing that that doesn't get talked that much about be, is you know you have to remember that I'm a contemporary visual artist. That's what I do, and so I also think about this as an art project. And the idea of um, one thing that concerns me as an artist is why am I an artist in the 21st century? Why am I someone that works alone in a studio and does oil paintings or does, you know, creates handmade artworks in the time of video and television and MTV and things? And it's such a strange occupation, and I'm always in doubt about it. But at the same time, I'm always trying to find ways to make things that only an artist could make in the world. And so the idea of making a whole entire illuminated manuscript by hand just seems like a project that was amazing, that no one can do that, no one does that. You can't do it on the computer. And so that's a big part of it, you know, looking at it from the art angle, making something that's never been made in the world or can't be made.
1: Mm-hmm. So can we talk a little bit about some of the, Obviously, the whole thing's a personal project, but in more particular ways. So, for example, the font that you use shows up in some of your other artwork. Was that was that something you had intentionally decided from the beginning, or did that evolve naturally? Uh,
0: no, it's. I decided from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, before I started this project, I spent a couple of years really, really looking at at historic Qurans and getting, you know, coffee table books out and looking at the beautiful ancient manuscripts with other decorated pages and everything. And I was, I am and was really aware of the importance of calligraphy in the tradition of Islamic artworks. And so uh, what I, you know, I wanted to emulate that and I wanted to think of, you know, who in the United States is really concerned with calligraphy in our times and the first thing I thought of was graffiti writers um, because they spend all day long, like, writing their name in different ways and practicing letters and thinking about letters. And so I thought, you know, graffiti is the American calligraphy of our times. And so I took like a simplified sort of Cholo graffiti style and made it a little bit more legible and used that for the typeface that, that I
1: created. Mm-hmm. And the, the surfing motifs are also something that you take out of your personal life. Could you say a little bit about the importance of surfing in the book? Well, well at I least in terms of visual representation, not that um, you're, I'm suggesting that like the act of surfing is hidden in the crayon, although maybe, I don't know.
0: Uh, no, I mean, it pops up because uh, sometimes... don't know. It's just a theme through my life, so it pops up in the work I do. Um, Sometimes I would be traveling and working on this project while I was traveling, Um, so I would include the place that I was working on the page um, in Europe or in France or Puerto Rico or different places. Um, But I think it's a subtle theme, but there's other themes that are more evident throughout the project, I think.
1: Okay, so can we, can we talk about some of some of those? What are the, the themes that you intentionally wanted to um, convey?
0: Well, uh, sort of one theme is that, you know, the Quran continually keeps saying that, uh, you know, this is a message and it's coming down from the sky, coming down from God to the people. And so I have many images about messages coming down from the sky, um, there's like a scene of a guy installing a satellite dish on, a, on the roof of a house. There's a scene of um, telephone line repairmen fixing the telephone pole lines. There's TV chat shows where people are talking. There's a scene of a newspaper distribution warehouse. So there's all kinds of scenes throughout of messages being transmitted in our times and the different ways that we can do that. So that's one theme that sort of keeps coming up. And another theme is obviously the Noah's flood is mentioned many times in the Quran and there's, I have many scenes of hurricane Katrina and other floods and flooding Mississippi river. And so those are examples.
1: What about the theme of violence? So especially since you had mentioned that nine 11 was a catalyst for thinking about this project and you can see themes of violence in various degrees throughout throughout the book. How much was that something that you consciously incorporated?
0: Well, it depends. Uh, you know, there are p- parts of the Quran that talk about sort of the rules of warfare and how people should be treated. And I always try to, you know, flip it from the way a normal American would think and say, and, you know, Americans are always saying, oh, the the, the Islamic extremists are doing this and doing that, and it says in the Quran but I would always flip it and be from the inside and think, okay, if this message is coming down to us and we're Americans and our troops are invading these countries, it means that our troops should follow these rules. Um, and so I have, um, like I said, every scene is a scene of life in the United States. And the only time it's not in the United States is when it scenes of American troops abroad in Afghanistan and Iraq and Guantanamo Bay.
1: Mm-hmm. So, since there, there's so many different kinds, I think the text can overwhelm people when they first look at it because it doesn't really fit into a clear genre. That was definitely my experience when I first looked at it, and I'm still trying to put it into a box. Although, as I say that, perhaps that's precisely the point, is that it won't fit no matter what <laughs> box I try to put it in. So as as a teacher, and I think a lot of people listening to this program will will, will be in the education field, how would you suggest using this in a classroom or a teaching context, which, like you said, could be in a, a museum, right? So I don't mean only in a classroom, but I mean pedagogically with teachers and students or a study group.
0: Well, well I'm, not a, I'm not a teacher, so I don't really think about things that way. But I have actually been told by uh, – I was at University of Michigan about a month ago, and uh, one of the professors there said that they assigned the book in their Islamic studies class – um, and which was great news, but I think for someone that's completely unfamiliar with Islam to, to be the first book that they encounter, I think it would be really, it's an easy gateway. It's, uh, it's the actual text of the Quran. And then there's the imagery that, that makes it seem, you know, less foreign and exotic and more
1: universal and American and human. Uh-huh. So, so as a self-described, not a, not a teacher, Did it, did it surprise you to know that this book was being used in a college classroom? It surprised me in a good way.
0: I sort of always sort of dreamed that that might happen. So when it was actually happening, it was
1: really thrilling. Uh Uh-huh. So do you, do you think that, um, that art has had, how should I phrase this? Do you wish that art showed up more in college curriculums, like outside of the you know, art 101 kind of class, like in, in a class on religion, for example, I think a lot of people wouldn't expect that it would be filled with art. And that's one of the fun things about teaching religion is it gets to surprise people and they can see how interdisciplinary it, it is. But, but yeah, do you, do you think that art showing up in curriculums would be helpful more so? Uh,
0: I suppose so. Sure. Yeah, it seems to make sense. I mean, I know I remember from art history like art history is basically the history of depictions of Christianity <laughs> for western art history is for hundreds of years. So, almost every scene in the in the Bible has been depicted by someone at some time. So, sure, looking at pictures is always better than just looking at boring text on a page.
1: <laughs> sure. Have you are you aware of anyone who have been inspired directly or indirectly by this project to produce analogs with other kinds of religious texts?
0: Uh I don't I don't know. I'm well obviously the, the Bible has been illustrated for centuries and I'm not sure about the uh so you know in the Eastern religion are all illustrated, the Krishna and all that. So Uh, those are all out there. right? Uh, As far as what might come after this, Zarina up at Yale, she said, oh, this is going to open the floodgates. I think people are going to be illustrating the Quran by droves. That's her opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I haven't seen that happening. I don't know if that's true, but she seemed to think so.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, I think the idea of tying a, a nationality to it makes it particularly... Intriguing as well. So the American Quran, and so presumably you could do this with any country and with any text, uh, re- religious or not. So in that regard, you're you're not aware of any kind of similar projects.
0: No, I'm not. I'm not aware of it. But that would be great. You know, one one thing about the title is that even people that are enthusiastic about the project, Muslim people, have said you know it's a really bad title. <laughs> They usually say, you know, there's no such thing as an American Koran. There is the Koran, the Holy Quran, and that's it. There's only one. And, and I completely agree with them 100%. Um, the only thing is, it just, the, it was the best title in the sense that, you know, having if it was the Koran for Americans, it just doesn't sound as good.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. So let's talk about the Americanness a little bit more of the project. So I I guess for you, for you personally did growing up in America, did completing this project have any kind of subtle or radical transformations of how you understood America, whatever that might mean to people?
0: Mm, It's it's hard to say, you know, it went on for so long. Um, It did, you know, one thing that's maybe not evident when you look at the project is one of the ideas I had throughout was to make it sort of a pan American project. So there's a scene from each of the 50 States included in the, in the book at some point. And they're not, they're not explicitly said or anything, but to me it was important that there's scenes from, you know, Alaska and Florida and Puerto Rico and New York and snow scenes and desert scenes. And I wanted to make a like broadly a, appealing to Americans and also um, relevant and to take in all the vastness of the, of the United States and include it.
1: And I I think that comes across very clearly that you see, you know, examples of so-called high culture and low culture and, you know, all sorts of nature scenes, city scenes. And so I think it in a really cool reflective way invites the reader to think about all the different things that America could mean. Think you know? So often we get these little, these myopic ideas of what we think America is, and this this book does a good job of challenging that. I think. Great. Well, well how would you suggest someone approach this book? Like, you, I think you you mentioned it, it's a coffee table book, so it's cool to just look at it and see the pictures. Um, do you, do you see other uses for it, or would you would there be a preferred use that you would envision?
0: Uh. I would hope people would use it any way that people would use the Quran. (laughs) I
1: hope people may be reading from
0: it uh, over Ramadan
1: tonight. Do you think that it's helpful if they're looking at this to read the supplementary material in it or go outside of the text to find information?
0: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Sure.
1: Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. But you're just just like <laughs> the Qur'an, you're saying you can have sort of a immediate reaction, but then you can also have you know a more research tempered kind of reaction. Yeah, absolutely yes, yes so <laughs> we, we we started off by talking about how how bad the public discourse in the United States is about Islam so as as you have watched that discourse evolve since nine eleven How have you seen it evolve? Is it it getting better, weirder, worse, just different?
0: Well, yeah, it ebbs and flows, and it seems to be at a particularly bad point right now. Um, But, yes, one of of the sort of sad ironies of this project was I started working on it nine years ago and probably exhibited the first pages from it eight, eight or seven years ago And at the time, I had that art show. People were saying, "Oh, this is such a great project. It's so relevant." And then, you know, ten years have gone on, and people say, "Oh, it's so relevant." So the fact that it's continually relevant for a decade is disheartening. I think, in in the sense that we continue to grapple with what Islam is in this country without ever really
1: making steps forward. Right. And so, something you said earlier resonated with what I encounter a lot in the classroom, uh, just with material, I assign or whatnot, what you said about reception to your text is that, you know, in general, people, people react great. And then, you know, there's the sort of the exceptions, but the exceptions really are the exceptions. So for people that would fit under that exception category of, you know, the people that are contributing to the kind of vitriolic discourse, uh, about Islam or the Quran or Arabs or what have you? Do you think that what would it what would it take? And maybe this is an impossible question, but I'll ask it anyway. What would it take to affect these these kinds of people who don't don't seem open to learning about new things? Well, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's <enough>. uh, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe I can ask it in a different way. Have you have you seen? I guess this is an obvious question, but could you could you share an example of how you've watched art touch someone before, perhaps in a way that it surprised you or took you off guard?
0: Uh, hmm. Well, I know that during the course of showing this project and, and, and since the book comes out, a lot of people have come up to me and said, you know, I never have read the Quran. I'm gonna go, I'm going to go... <laughs> buy your book or else buy another copy or get it from the library or, or something. And that's happened almost everywhere I go to talk about this project. So you know, that's great. Um, yeah. But as far as people that are closed minded in the beginning, it's, you know,
1: I don't know how you fight ignorance. <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so connected to that as well, um, along the lines of impossible questions. So if you, if you could do something differently throughout the nine years that it took you to complete the project, is there anything that comes to mind?
0: No, no. I think, well, you know, besides the the simple thing, that you know, I had never done a project like this on this small scale and this kind of paint and this kind of thing. And I sort of was learning to paint these small pages as I went along. And from my point of view, they seem to get better as the years went on i got better technically at the craft of of doing them and so from my point of view i can see where the the bad ones don't seem as good to me i mean the earlier pages don't seem as good to me and then the better ones the later ones seem better so i wish i could have maintained that whole good quality throughout but you know it's something that comes with with the learning as you go
1: so in terms of the illustrations and the text if the reader is going through it from left to right like you would through a normal book in English is that the order that you you wrote the text and drew the illustrations
0: uh, Yeah I don't really understand it's the it's the form of the Quran I don't really understand the question
1: Well did you did you draw like the illustrations in order from the first chapter to the hundred fourteenth chapter, or did you have a, a bunch of illustrations and then you figured out how are you going to connect them um, at a later stage, maybe?
0: Uh, no, I I didn't go in sequence. It, it wasn't necessary to go in sequence because, as you probably know, the the sequence of the surahs in the Quran aren't chronological anyway. They're arranged by length in general. So, since they're not chronological, it's not really necessary to read the Quran from first page to last. You can sort of jump around. Um, So, I I, jumped around. I would, just for practical purposes, I would do a really long, tedious chapter, which was really demanding of concentration for several weeks. And then I would do a shorter a chapter for like a break and then a long one and a short one, and a long one, and a short one.
1: Mm-hmm. And you may be illustrating them at, during that time as well.
0: Yeah. Oh, I would completely do the, finish the entire page
1: with the text and the image at the same time uh-huh. before moving on to the next one. Uh uh-huh. Cause one, one thing that prompted the earlier question is when you were saying you felt like you, you got better at your craft as you went on, but the reader, yeah. the reader won't start from the beginning and then see the pictures gradually get more, honed as he moves through, because you didn't necessarily draw the pictures in that order.
0: That's correct. Right. I think I started with Sura 34.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Well, so I think the best thing for a reader to do, this is, like I said, this is an unusual interview for us to do because it relies so heavily on, on the visuals of the project, which hopefully will entice everyone listening to this to purchase a copy of the book or go check things out online. So Sando, in terms of current and future projects, the kinds of things you see yourself doing in the next five to 10 years, what's on the agenda?
0: Well, I don't really have any giant projects lined up, but uh, I've been working steadily. Um, I did finish the Quran project about a year or a year and a half ago because there was the lag time of me finishing and then, the time it took to get it published and put into book form. And then there was a the museum exhibit of the show which was at the Orange County Museum of Art here in California and which is now traveling to Oregon and then on to uh, hopefully to Detroit and Washington, D.C. and maybe to Toronto. But uh, so for the last year or so I've been working on a series of really large ink drawings which I've been calling Imaginary Monuments and they're about five foot high drawings uh, of fictional monuments to
1: famous documents from world history and that where where are you in in that project
0: uh, I've done about 20 of them uh, I had a show of them in San Francisco in November last year um, which went well and I'm carrying on with them they're really fun to work on because uh, just like the Quran I sort of I get an idea about something and then I, I read about it and I learn about it and then I do the drawing. But unlike the Quran, it's, I can do the whole thing from idea to finish drawing in about a month. And, and then I can look up some new topic. And so for me, they're really fun and I'm learning a lot. So I've done one to the United States constitution, um, one to the United Nations declaration of human rights, one to the internet protocol, um, one to the rules of soccer, one to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. So all kinds of different things, and they're really fun.
1: And do you see yourself returning to any big projects related to Islam or the Quran or even religion more broadly?
0: I, I don't have it in my head right now, but I'm sure it'll happen. Uh, This project is getting a lot of attention, so I'm constantly talking about it and involved and and meeting with with Muslim groups and things, so I continue to be interested and involved in it.
1: Well, cool. It's been fabulous chatting with you and a delight to look through your book, and I I look forward to sharing it with my friends and students in the coming years as well. Great. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Sandow Burr. The visual artist behind American Quran published by Liftright in 2015. Thank you for listening.